Amen. Let's bow and pray before we open God's word. Father, we do come before you this morning acknowledging your holiness. It's your glory that is holy. Your justice is holy. Your power and your righteousness is a holy power. It's a holy righteousness that is pure and spotless and unique. There is none like you. And you are also holy in your grace, holy in your mercy and love towards us. And we marvel at your glory and your power today. And we ask that as we come to your holy word, your truth that is perfect and unique and set apart, the only source of perfect revelation, we ask God that you would speak to our hearts and reveal to us your will and in your word. Give us hearts that are soft this morning, hearts that are receptive to you, hearts that are humble, hearts that are hungry and teachable. And God, we ask that as we worship you in your holiness today, as we sit under your word, that you would make us more and more into the holy people you desire us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8 this morning. Luke, chapter 8. We're now partway through the ministry and the life of Jesus, and throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen a number of different responses to Jesus. At his miracles, some people marvel. Some people are amazed. They've never seen anything like this, and they glorify God. There's others who, seeing these same miracles, are angry. They seethe with rage that Jesus would dare to do these things on the Sabbath. As Jesus teaches, there are some who believe, there are some who are poor in spirit, and they grasp onto the good news that Jesus is teaching, but there's others who reject him, others that are cynical. There are some who weep and anoint his feet with their tears, worshiping Jesus with great love, and there's others from his hometown in Nazareth that try to throw him off of a cliff. And then there's some that do neither. They neither respond to him with love and worship and faith, nor do they demonstrate open hostility. They simply listen, they observe, and they do nothing. They just move on with their lives. And really, the same kinds of responses are often seen today in our society, in our city. Some who believe, some who accept, some who worship, and others who reject others who dismiss the message of the gospel. We see this response even among our own families, perhaps some even here under this roof today. Everyone responds to Jesus somehow. Why is it that some people respond to the gospel in faith and others don't? What explains this phenomenon? Some people think it's about the way that the message is shared. Perhaps it's about finding the right arguments. It's all in the presentation. Other people think that, well, maybe we just need to do more to show those that don't yet believe, we need to show them by our works and by our life that the gospel is worth believing. Maybe the real problem is the church's testimony. Maybe that explains unbelief. Some people even wonder if maybe we need to find some new methods. Perhaps the preaching of the gospel is somewhat outdated and you know, long sermons from scripture is sort of, you know, an ineffective tactic if we really want to reach the culture. But Jesus has a different answer for why there are different responses to the message of the gospel. 
And Jesus tells us that it has to do with the condition of the heart. It's the necessity of true hearing that Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd here in Luke chapter 8. And he reveals to us not only that there's different heart conditions, not only is there a necessity of true hearing, but it's actually the sovereign plan of God to use his word to save sinners. I'm going to read our text starting in Luke chapter 8 verse 1. It says, Soon afterward he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and People from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The point of Jesus' sermon and the point of this sermon this morning is that it is essential that we hear rightly. It's essential that we hear, that we receive, that we understand God's word and respond to it rightly. Jesus means a lot more by hearing than simply picking up the sound waves coming out of his mouth. It's a spiritual reality, and it is essential that we hear rightly. The setting for this story that we see in verses 1 through 4, Luke puts all the emphasis on people. It's interesting. He doesn't tell us about the location like some of the other gospel authors. He doesn't mention what time of day. He doesn't mention Jesus standing in a boat or people on a hillside. All his emphasis is on people. We find here that Jesus is traveling from town to town throughout the cities and villages in verse 1, and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke directs our attention to Jesus and what he's doing, his ministry of words, announcing that God is fulfilling his promises. That's the good news of the kingdom. These promises to Abraham and David and through the prophets of old that the messianic blessings were coming. Jesus is preaching that message. And he's demonstrating 
messianic power, kingdom power over the forces of evil as he casts out demons. He's demonstrating power over disease and even over death as he raises people from the dead. And he's demonstrating his power and authority to forgive sins. He's preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus is not alone. We find that the 12 were with him, verse 1. His chosen students, they're being trained. Jesus is transmitting truth to them. And Luke notes that there are also women among his followers as well. While most rabbis in Jesus' day refused to teach women, Jesus welcomes them. He mentions several by name. First, Mary called Magdalene. She had been set free from seven demons. Formerly, this woman who was spiritually unclean is now walking with Jesus. There's a transformation there. He mentions Cusa as well. She's married to a man who's employed by Herod, a fixture in the Roman government in that region. This is an unlikely candidate to follow Jesus as he's preaching about the kingdom of God, someone whose husband is a full-time employee of a very different kind of a kingdom. But Luke is showing us that the gospel is penetrating all layers and all aspects of society. And there's some unlikely outsiders that are actually brought near by his preaching ministry. Joanna is also mentioned. We know little else about her except that Joanna is with Mary Magdalene at another scene in Luke's gospel. At the tomb on Easter morning, it's two of these women that will be there as the first witnesses of the resurrection. And these women, Luke says, they not only followed Jesus and traveled with him, but they invested heavily in his ministry. They are participating with him by funding Jesus and his disciples traveling full time. They are examples of a positive response to Jesus. They are like the woman that we met in chapter 7 who had been forgiven much and therefore loved much and wanted to serve, wanted to contribute, wanted to show their love for Jesus. They're an example of this positive response to Jesus and his message. But it's not just Jesus and the 12 and these women. There's also a crowd that gathers. We see this crowd comes from town after town, according to verse 4. And these crowds from different towns were very diverse. As we saw in chapter 7, these crowds often included tax collectors and scribes and Pharisees and all of these different interested parties who were there for different reasons. And their responses to Jesus were often diverse as well. There are different kinds of hearers that are in the crowd this day. And so Jesus speaks to this diverse crowd of all different kinds of people, and he speaks in the form of a parable. It's a, a short story. Jesus tells uh, around 60 of these in his, throughout the Gospels. And these stories illustrate spiritual truth. They take common metaphors and, and images from life and use those symbols to teach people the things of God. We find the giving of the parable in verses 5 through 8. He speaks to them and says, a sower went out to sow his seed. Again, this is a common metaphor for people who lived in a society where farming was very, very common. Uh, we often have a few more layers of separation between the field and our table. It was different in that day, and they didn't have combines. They didn't have tractors. So even if some of you are farmers, this kind of farming was different. They carried the seed in a bag that would be slung over their shoulder, and then the farmer 
would go and scatter that seed by hand as he worked his way through the field. And so, of course, as he did, the seed would fall on different types of soil. And Jesus lays out four different types of soil that have varying results. And he uses four different prepositions to describe this. It's interesting, he says that as he sows the seed, some fell, in verse 5, along the path. Others, verse 6, fell on the rock. There's a different preposition. Some, verse 7, fell among the thorns. And then finally, some fell into good soil. Four different types of soil. Four different prepositions that describe what's happening when the seed lands on the soil. And then we see the varying results. First, in verse 5, some falls along the path. There would have been heavy foot traffic along the edges of, of the property. And that would have meant, naturally, that the soil was hard packed. So the seed is unable to penetrate the surface. Instead, that seed gets stepped on and it gets eaten by the birds. Some falls on the rock. This soil may have looked good at first, but underneath that thin layer of soil, that thin layer of topsoil would have been a layer of, of rock. And as you know, the rock can't hold any water and the root can't penetrate the rock. So that seed may have sprung up at first, Jesus says, kind of like those weeds in the early spring in the cracks of your driveway. But what's going to happen come August? That grass, those dandelions, they, they won't be growing in the cracks of your driveway in August because they will wither away. Jesus says that's what happens to the seed that falls on the, the soil that has rock in it. A third type in verse 7 is some falls among the thorns. Now this soil seems at first to have potential, but there's competition Something else has already taken root there. And so the thorns crowd out the grain. The thorns steal the nutrients from the soil. The thorns absorb all the moisture, all the water. The thorns grow up to block the sun and, and keep that necessary sunlight from reaching the grain. And so the thorns end up choking out the seed. But fourth, in verse 8, he tells us that some falls into good soil. And here the intended goal is achieved. The seed is finally able to take root. It sprouts to life and it bears fruit. And in fact, there is a great harvest that comes from this soil. While it may be tempting to think that, you know what, after the first three types of soil, I think there's a problem with this farmer's method <laughs> because he seems to be failing. But we find that this last type of soil proves his work is highly successful. A 30-fold harvest would have been average. A 60-fold harvest would have been uh, incredible. It would have been highly successful. It would have been excellent. But a 100-fold harvest to reap 100 times more than what you sowed was nearly unheard of. That is a borderline miracle. This is a supernatural result. So the startling joy of this harvest, 100-fold, greatly overshadows the tragedy and the disappointment of the first three types of soil. Jesus then closes his parable with a call to the wise in verse 8. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is an appeal. He's speaking directly to his hearers and he says, I hope you are paying attention. This is a warning to those who might dismiss his words. 
His words challenge his audience to evaluate, not just to evaluate what he's saying, not just to evaluate the message that he is offering them that day, but to evaluate themselves, to evaluate their own hearts, to evaluate their own response to what it is that Jesus is teaching. He says, are you getting it? Do you perceive the truth and the impact of my words? Will you understand and believe my message? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is essential that we hear rightly. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder what Jesus meant by this parable because his disciples ask him in verse 9. We find the meaning of the parable explained in verses 9 through 15. When his disciples asked him what the parable meant, verse 9, he gives the explanation. And in this explanation, we find four timeless truths about what it means to hear rightly. If you today hear the words of Jesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you're saying, okay, I I want to hear rightly. I want to know what it is that Jesus means by this. Well, Jesus is going to explain and give us these four truths that we need to understand. And the first is this, and we find it in verse 10. Number one, right hearing is a gift of grace. It is a gift of grace. Verse 10, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Before Jesus gives the actual explanation of the parable, first he explains why he's using parables in the first place. And he tells his disciples, to you it has been given. It has been given. And it has been given specifically to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. The secrets of the kingdom, sometimes translated the mysteries of the kingdom, refers to the marvelous plans of God. The plan of God that was once concealed in the Old Testament that is now being made known. These are truths that that previously were hidden from view. That now God is shining the light on these things and manifesting the truth now here in the time of Jesus. These secrets, these mysteries include the truth of who Jesus really was, that he is both the son of man and the son of God. These mysteries include the shocking truth that the Messiah was not coming to drive out the Romans and, and subdue the nations and rule over the nations just yet. Instead, he had come to die for sinners, to suffer as a servant, to lay down his life as an atonement, to die on the cross and rise again three days later. These secrets, these mysteries include, as Luke will write about in his sequel in the book of Acts, the shocking truth that it's not just the Jews who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, that through faith the Gentiles are included in God's plan of salvation. These are the secrets, these are the mysteries that would have been mind-blowing and even offensive to some in Jesus' day. But Jesus tells his disciples, listen, God is giving this knowledge to you. It is a gift of grace. If you hear and you understand and you embrace the things that I am teaching you, that is a gift of God. Their knowledge and the understanding that they possess, it's not a result of their research. It's not a result of their scholarship and their academic effort. It's not a result of their intellect. 
their knowledge and understanding and insight is not a result of their effort to attain. No, it is a result of grace. God has chosen to give it to them. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? They give various answers. Then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The reason that Peter could confess that truth is because God had graciously given him this knowledge. In John chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Right hearing is a gift of grace. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is a gift of grace to hear the words of Christ, to understand the message of Christ, to believe in the truth of Christ, that is a gift of grace. The only reason anyone can understand, the only reason anyone can truly hear is by the grace of God. So Jesus says that to them, the truth is being revealed. But for others, in contrast, this same truth is actually being concealed. It is being hidden And Jesus here quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus quotes from a smaller, he quotes just a small piece of this larger portion when he says to his disciples, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that, and here comes the quote, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This Old Testament passage of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is actually the second most quoted passage in the New Testament. I think it's second only to Psalm 16. Oftentimes, the New Testament authors, including Jesus and the apostles, they refer to this passage to explain why it is that many don't believe and only some do. Jesus is telling his disciples that these parables serve a dual purpose. The parables, these stories that illustrate these truths, they reveal the truth to those who have ears to hear, those who are recipients of God's grace. But they, these same parables actually conceal the truth from those who have hard hearts, those who are opposed to Christ. And so while these parables communicate grace to those who hear, They actually are a form of judgment upon those who do not believe. One commentator describes the parables like the stained glass windows in a cathedral. That from the outside, they appear dull and and, and gloomy. But on the inside, they are radiant and brilliant with light. John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. The parables both reveal the truth and conceal them at the same time. And all of this is an expression of God's sovereign grace. Listen, friends, it is important that we acknowledge the truth that there is no tug of war between God and unbelievers. There is no tug of war. 
God is completely sovereign. And right hearing of the gospel is a gift of grace. This ought to produce a great sense of humility and gratitude among those who believe. Where would you be today if God's grace had not pursued you? Think about that for a moment. Perhaps you were saved as an adult and you remember what life was like before Christ. Imagine if Jesus never interrupted your story. Some of you have been believers since you were young children. Imagine if God had never gotten hold of your heart. Imagine if those sins that exist in you had been allowed to grow to maturity and dominate your life. Imagine where you would be if God had not given you the gift of right hearing. This ought to produce gratitude and humility within us. And I think that's one of the reasons Jesus shares this truth with his disciples. Because he's about to explain four different types of soil. And when they consider their own fruitful response to the gospel, it is essential that they not be in any way proud, self-righteous, or arrogant. No. Faith, rightly hearing the gospel, is a gift of grace. This also keeps us from any wrong thoughts about Jesus being a failure. He is not an ineffective farmer. Jesus is not a bad preacher. He's not a Messiah who tries really hard but fails. He's not a well-intentioned Savior who falls short of what he hopes to accomplish. No, the reason that some respond in faith and others do not is ultimately the result of God's sovereign grace. And the parables serve to accomplish this end. They both reveal and conceal the truth of God. This is why Jesus speaks in parables. But after explaining why he's sharing parables in the first place, then he gets down to business explaining what this parable means. So first of all, right hearing is a gift of grace. But secondly, right hearing is a response to the word. It's a response to the word. In verse 11, he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Jesus says that the seed is the word. It is the logos, the message that Jesus has been traveling around proclaiming. Verse 1, Jesus is going throughout the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is the message that he is the Messiah, that God is keeping his promises. Later, this word of God will come to encompass all of Jesus' work his death on the cross, and his resurrection. We see in the book of Acts that the word of God prevails, that the word of God, um, that it expands, that, that it travels, that it grows legs. And it's the message of Jesus that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he did die on the cross for sin and he did rise again and that he is coming back three days later. Jesus says the seed here pictures That word, that message, that summary message of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And this message, like a seed, has great power to create and give life. That's what a seed does, right? It's this little dry chunk. But from this little dry chunk comes life, comes green, comes flexible, comes fruitfulness. Jesus says that the seed is the word of God. It has the power to give and create life, eternal life. Just like a seed penetrates the soil, the word is meant to penetrate the heart. 
And just like the seed, when it reaches maturity, produces a harvest, so also the heart that receives God's word is bound to bear fruit. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why Jesus busies himself with preaching. Yes, he does signs and wonders. Yes, he ministers to people and helps people. He does. But he always leaves town before all the needs are met. And he always gives the reason. It's necessary that I go to other towns and preach there also. For this reason, I was sent. Jesus busies himself because he says, I must preach. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. And his mission is to get this word out, to scatter the seed on all the different types of soils. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, we find this amazing description of God's word. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is the description of God's word coming down from heaven. Jesus, as the incarnate word, proclaims the eternal word of God. And Jesus says that the seed is the word of God. Now, sometimes people think that we need more than the word of God. Some people think we need more deeds and less doctrine, that we need more good works and less good words. Some have even adopted the slogan, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. How many of you guys have heard that before? It's a common slogan, right? But listen, friends, if we ever set aside the proclamation of the word, we are setting aside the one thing that has the power to transform someone's heart. The seed is the word of God. It has the power to give life and create fruitfulness in a person's soul. Right hearing is the response of faith to the word of God. It's a response of believing in the truth of the word of God, receiving the authority of the word of God, submitting to the judgments in the word of God, delighting in the wisdom that comes to us through the word of God. Hearing and receiving the word is hearing and receiving the truth that is revealed on the pages of scripture. What is your attitude toward God's word? How receptive is the soil of your heart to the truth of God's word? Right hearing is a response to the word. So it's a gift of grace. Right hearing is a gift of grace. Secondly, right hearing is a response to the word. And third, right hearing has many obstacles. There are many obstacles to rightly hearing the word of God. There's reasons why the first three soils fail to bear fruit. And Jesus warns that there are many obstacles to genuine faith, to right hearing. First, there are spiritual forces. We see this in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Satan is an enemy of God. He is an enemy, therefore, of God's gospel. 
And just as God is working to bring about his plan of salvation, so Satan is also working, attempting to oppose God's work. In 2 Corinthians 4.3, the Apostle Paul writes that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those that are perishing, those that do not believe, those that are on their way towards eternal death, in their case, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are spiritual forces at work. And when there is a hard heart that is resistant to the word of God, that gives opportunity for the devil to come in and to take away the seed, to blind them from the truth. So there are spiritual forces that, that, that pose an obstacle to the word. Second, there are difficult circumstances. We see this in verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Time of testing refers to time of trial, time of difficulty, time of temptation, where there's adversity that's brought to bear upon the soul, perhaps even persecution. Listen, following Jesus does not mean that life is going to get easier. Most of you know this by now. In fact, it may even get harder in some ways. Your life may get more difficult if you receive Christ as Savior and Lord and commit to follow him. Suffering is inevitable for followers of Christ. It's one of the most famous fiction stories in the history of the world, and it has great spiritual value. It's the story of Pilgrim's Progress, written centuries ago by John Bunyan. And in this story, this, this allegory of a man who's named Christian, do you kind of get the point there? His name is Christian. He represents Christians. He's leaving the city of destruction where he's from this town that's destined for judgment. He's on his way to the celestial city, to heaven. And at the very beginning of his journey, he's accompanied by a neighbor, by an acquaintance of his whose name is Pliable. Pliable means soft, moldable, that you sort of you know, take the shape of whatever forces are around you. And at the very beginning of the story, Pliable seems very eager to experience the happiness and the joy of the celestial city. He tells Christian, I, I want to go with you. Now, this journey that they were embarking on would be fraught with many dangers and many obstacles. Christian and Pliable had no clue what lay ahead of them. And not long after they began, their path led through a swamp. It was called the, the Slough of Despond. It was discouragement, difficulty. And Pliable and Christian are described by Bunyan, the author, as sinking, getting sucked in by the mud, struggling to make it through. And Pliable becomes angry. He becomes angry at Christian because this kind of hardship is not what he thought he was signing up for. Bunyan writes that Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness that you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. And so away he went, and Christian saw him no more. 
It is true that Pliable did not have to face all of the difficulties that lie ahead for Christian, that he would face throughout the rest of the journey. But it's also true that Pliable never made it to the celestial city. He went home to a comfortable life in the city of destruction, only to be swallowed up by the judgment that later fell on that city. Listen, some people think that the Christian life is supposed to be smooth and easy, that it's the path of least resistance, but that's furthest from the truth. In Acts chapter 14, 21, it says, when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is full of difficulty and adversity. And Jesus is teaching here that while some seed seems to spring up at first, if it falls away in time of testing, if it turns back when the road gets hard, at the first sign of hardship, if it withers, that shows that such faith is actually not genuine because there is no fruit. There are spiritual obstacles to faith. There are difficult circumstances that oppose right hearing. There's also worldly distractions. We see this in verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Jesus explains to his disciples that sometimes what keeps the seed from bearing fruit is that the heart is consumed with other things, consumed with the things of this world. This kind of person may hear the word, and they may seem to even receive it at first. You might come and sing these songs at church with a smile on your face. You might come and follow along carefully during a sermon and nod your head in agreement. But what happens when you go on your way? Verse 14, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, something happens. Something happens. It says they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. What are your cares and concerns? What are the, the burdens on your heart, the things that capture your, your attention and your imagination? Is it your career path? Is it your human relationships? Is it your health? Is it social issues? Is it political turmoil? Is it your own five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan? Listen, it is easy to forget that our greatest concern, more than all of those other things, must always be the state of our own soul before God. Jesus says that some seem to hear the word, but as they go on their way, they're choked by these cares and concerns of the world. There's also the danger of riches and material possessions. Our hearts are easily consumed with getting them and then keeping them and then maintaining them and then storing them and then organizing them and all of these things. And some people can give their lives to storing up treasure on earth. That's why Jesus elsewhere says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because of these kinds of distractions. There's so much that can compete for the affections of our heart. Don't forget that one of the people listening that day was Judas. Judas seemed to be hearing. He seemed to be following, seemed to be nodding along in agreement. 
But over time, it would become clear that his heart was ruled not by the word of God, but by a desire for wealth. Judas would skim off the top, embezzling the funds that were being contributed by wealthy women like Joanna and Cusa and Mary Magdalene. He would eventually betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That shows where his heart really was. Jesus says the the seed can be choked out by the cares and concerns of the world, by a desire for riches, also by the pleasures of life. Sometimes what competes with the gospel for, for supremacy in our own hearts are the things in this world that we think will bring us pleasure, the things that we think will make us happy, the food and the drink, another bottle, another pill, another girl, another episode of your favorite show, one more minute of scrolling on social media, that upcoming vacation that you're planning for, retirement plans and all the fun activities you will get to do, All of those things can threaten to crowd out the word. Those things can become central in your heart and choke out the truth of the gospel. There are many obstacles to right hearing. And ultimately, failing to bear fruit, whether it's because of a hard heart and spiritual forces, whether it's because of difficult circumstances and falling away, whether it's because of distractedness and all the things of the world that can capture our hearts, whatever the reason, failing to bear fruit ultimately proves that there is no real faith. This is not just about an underperforming disciple who doesn't bear fruit. No, bearing fruit isn't a matter of just the quality of your spiritual life. It's a matter of whether or not you have it at all. True, genuine faith will bear fruit. James teaches us this in James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. That sort of superficial, temporary, fickle faith is no faith at all, and it cannot save, cannot save. So it must be asked, what's the condition of the soil in your heart? Is it hard packed? Are you resistant to the truth of scripture? Is your faith the kind that is shallow, the kind that has no roots? Is your faith being choked out by other things in the world? Well, Jesus' words come to us today as a warning, that those who hear wrongly, that those who hear casually, that those who hear him skeptically, that those who hear him with an attitude of apathy and complacency, take care, be careful. You who have ears to hear, let them hear, because there are many obstacles to rightly hearing the word. So right hearing is a gift of grace. Right hearing is a response of the word. Right hearing has many obstacles. And then fourth and finally, right hearing leads to a fruitful faith. Right hearing leads to fruitful faith. It almost seems like Jesus is painting a dark picture here. But then comes the surprising joy of this bountiful harvest. Look at the description of the good soil that we see in verse 15. He says, they hear the word like the others, but unlike the others, the good soil, those with a good heart, hold it fast. They hold on 
It's not temporary. It's not shallow. They don't let go when things get difficult. They don't let go when other temptations arrive, uh, arise. They hold fast to the word with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is genuine faith. It reveals a heart that is not hard, a heart that's not fickle, not distracted, rather a heart that is honest, honest about sin, honest about its own, your own need for salvation, and a heart that is sincere, sincere in your desire to know Christ and to experience his grace and to give your life to him. And this sort of heart bears fruit with patience, or another way to say it, bears fruit by persevering. Yes, there will be difficult circumstances. Yes, there will be concerns and cares and temptations in this life. But the good soil perseveres through all of that. And there is much fruit. A great spiritual harvest, 100-fold, a supernatural, miraculous bounty that is evidence of God's grace at work. The first three soils may fail to bear fruit, yes. But nevertheless, Jesus says, God is doing great things. Things through the preaching of his word. There is nothing wrong with Jesus' method. There's nothing wrong with his approach to ministry. There is definitely nothing that is deficient about the word of God. The simple explanation for various responses is that there's different kinds of soil. There's different kinds of soil. Although many fail to receive the word, others will bear fruit. Among those to whom God is giving the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, there is and there will be a great harvest, an abundant harvest of God's grace. So the question is, do you see yourself in this simple story? Because we're meant to. We're meant to look here and see something that tells us something about ourselves. We're meant to heed Jesus' words, you who have ears to hear, you better hear. You better consider not just the truth I'm saying, but consider your own response to the message of the gospel. This parable offers a warning, a warning to those with a hard heart, a warning to those who are shallow, those who are distracted. It matters that we hear rightly with a sincere heart, an honest heart that holds fast to God's word. I believe this passage also offers great encouragement Encouragement for the small remnant of believers. Although there are many types of soil, and often what even looks like at first glance, excitement, and oh, it looks like this person's interested. It looks like this person might be believing. And then later, sometimes there's disappointment. As some people fall away, other people give their heart to the cares and the pleasures of the world. At the same time, we're reminded that there is a great harvest in the end, and God's word will not return void. So let's continue to trust God's word. Let's continue to proclaim it, and let's await that great harvest that God will bring about for his glory. If you recognize in your own self today that your heart is the hard-packed soil, that you're stubborn, you're resistant to God's word, or maybe your heart is the shallow soil, there's really no roots. You're in danger of falling away. If you recognize in yourself that you're the person who's distracted by the things of the world, the good news is that Jesus is an amazing farmer. And he's not only able to sow seed, he's also able to change the soil conditions. He's able to plow it up. He's able to get rid of the thorns. 
He's able to remove those things that would keep us from embracing his word. If you recognize your need today, then cry out to him. Give your heart to him. Give the field of your soul to the one Savior who's able to create and bring about life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that there are many here today whose hearts have genuinely received the seed of the gospel. They have believed the life-giving, life-changing message that sinners who trust in Christ and believe in his death and resurrection can be made alive, can be made new creations in Christ, can be filled with your spirit and can therefore bear much fruit. I thank you, God, that you have given this gift of grace to many. We recognize it is not a result of our wisdom, of our moral efforts. We are simply recipients of your sovereign grace, and for that we give you thanks, and we tremble in awe. We're humbled that you would choose to love people like us. And Lord, for those who may recognize that there's something in their heart today, whether pride or idolatry, distractedness, something that is competing with the word of God, I pray that they would repent, that they would turn from those things, that they would renounce their self-reliance, renounce their pride and unbelief, renounce their love for the things of this world. And I pray that they would eagerly receive your word and that you would create and strengthen life in them. Lord, bring about a great harvest in this church for your glory so that you might receive the reward that you deserve for your suffering on the cross as you came to purchase a people to redeem for yourself a people who would love you and worship your name. Lord, help us to hear rightly. We pray this in your name. Amen.